Hello everyone. It's been a while. It's been six weeks or so since I released an episode and I hope this one is worth the wait because not only is it episode 40, but this is with uh, a guest that is very, very well known by many of you. Um, Boosh Exonator is someone that I definitely wanted to have on when I kind of outlined a list of names uh, for potential guests when I started this podcast. And it's a bit surreal, honestly, to to have him on and the discussion did not disappoint whatsoever. Boo and I chatted mainly about um, the horizontal jumps, as you'd imagine. And we started off with kind of the ideas behind uh, pelvic undulation and oscillation. So the role of the pelvis in sprinting and how that kind of translates into events such as the jumps, um, how it translates into injury prevention. Much of uh, Boo's work now is in the realm of rehab consulting and performance uh, consulting. So he has assessed this as a, as a big factor in not only performance, but injury prevention. And we kind of brought that into the long jump approach, the takeoff and everything else as I've taken the Altus jumps course. I noticed that a reoccurring theme is like pelvic posture is really important in, in executing efficient jumps. And again, um, not falling into the holes of, over rotation and so forth we did talk about necessary rotation though and that's something that through watching the likes of the lsu jumpers through seeing some of his ideas and even my own experience as a long jumper that is a factor in some of the bigger performances that you see so you know fighting that kind of over rotation and, and finding a way to land um, those jumps that almost seem out of control. And I felt like Boo would obviously be a great guest to discuss um, those ideas and, and how we find ourselves in those positions. So that was one of the many uh, great components to this discussion. We went into also triple jump hop mechanics, phase distribution, um, plyometric execution, you name it, athlete readiness. Yeah, there was a lot in this. And, you know, if you've heard Boo talk before, he is able to explain very complicated things in very simple fashion. So that's what makes a great educator. And many of you listening to this podcast have received your education from him. If it's at the USTF CCCA coaches convention, um, or as I said, the Altus jumps course, or in my case, when I was 15, 16, just uh, starting to undertake the long jump, I was looking up, um, videos on how to get better and i was seeing the complete track and field youtube videos and there you'll find uh, boo kind of going through short bound series and various other things to do with um i suppose takeoff mechanics stuff that i really did not understand at that age and it was very much um kind of fluff to me at that time and in other words i just could not comprehend what he was saying um Felt like I could hold myself a little better in the conversation now, but uh, I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, nevertheless, I know you're going to enjoy it um, because Boo did an excellent job of, you know, really taking care of each and every topic that I tried to bring to the table. And it was a real joy to just, real joy and just surreal to, to have a conversation with the person that I've been following for so long. So I hope you enjoy the episode, guys. Um, and thank you for the continued support. Who 
Fushak Snyder. It is an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Um, Boo, I know you've spent a long time with Louisiana State University track and field and and obviously, you know, a keen um, learner and an educator across USA, TF, CCCA. But give us a little insight to what you're, you're up to nowadays. Um, yeah. Well, now I'm trying to enter semi-retirement, um, but I haven't been totally successful yet. But basically what I'm doing now is that I'm away from the university and away from a facility every day. I'm pretty much just doing consulting work. Um, you know, your listeners probably know I do quite a bit of work outside of track and field. I do a lot of work in strength and conditioning. I do a lot of work in rehabilitation. And the phone's always ringing with a professional sports team or a university or somebody who wants me to come in and provide some professional development or help them to do something a little bit better. And I, and I really enjoy that type of work. You know, the people are very appreciative. Uh, you know, um, it, it keeps me on my toes because it's constant problem solving. You know, there's never an easy case. There are always tough cases. And I kind of enjoy handling the tough cases. And uh, so in short, that's basically what I'm doing now, in addition to, you know, keeping up things around the house and managing a small farm and you know, the hobbies that my wife and I like to do. That's lovely. I suppose, what do you believe has been the kind of epicenter of a lot of these problems um, when you're solving them? You know, we, we wanted to talk about um, the role of the pelvis and, and how it plays a, a kind of key contrib- contributing factor to um, long jump and sprinting and triple jump and everything like that. But have you found that maybe that's a missing piece in a lot of the professional problems or, or professional sports teams um, that you end up kind of digging into? Yeah, there's no doubt uh, that there's an underappreciation for movement of the pelvis. You know, uh, I think so many sports teams, sports models and so forth, look at the pelvis as something that doesn't move. And as a result of that, energy isn't fed into the periphery of the body uh, effectively and and chains break down, you know, when you look at, you know, any time that you're applying force in the lower body, you know, the energy production starts in the lumbar spine, it radiates out into the pelvis, you know, it's amplified by the pelvis and then further out. So if you have any point of that chain that becomes immobile, other parts are going to become hypermobile. And when something becomes hypermobile, that's a recipe for injury. So I go into a lot of situations where uh, acceleration mechanics aren't being taught correctly. And as a result of that, the pelvis isn't free to move. And therefore, there are 90% hamstring injuries, 10% quad injuries, and so forth. Uh, I also go into a lot of sports cultures where uh, weightlifting in many situations is overdone. And as a result of that, the pelvis loses its ability to move, not necessarily for technical reasons, but for pathological reasons when um, you know, the lumbar spines tight, hip flexors are tight and so forth. And then basically you get the same kind of issues, the same kind of problems. You know, when I, 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 I do a decent amount of work, you know, consulting in American football and such, and it just amazes me how you can have that many hamstring injuries in a sport where you never run more than 40 yards. It's just, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It's just an, it's an insufficient appreciation of what exactly happens in actual running mechanics and how energy is actually produced and transmitted when you run correctly. And something that comes to mind as you're saying that, do you find like when it's overdone, i.e., you know, the weight room, it dampens kind of that coordination aspect that's necessary to execute efficient mechanics as well? Like, do you feel like that kind of plays a role too? 
Yeah, I, there's no doubt. I, I think that in many situations, a lot of athletes, uh, because the weight room is not done correctly, walk through life proprioceptively challenged, uh, continuously proprioceptively challenged, whereas uh, the proprioceptors don't get a chance to recover. I'm a firm believer. There's no research out there. Maybe someday somebody will prove me wrong, but by cause and effect and by observation, I can say that when you do a lot of these different types of weightlifting exercises, pretty much the heavy, slow ones, uh, there's short-term proprioceptive fatigue that occurs. And as a result of that, uh, you're not as sharp and, and you're, 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 you're paying a price from a coordination standpoint. You're paying a, a price from an elasticity standpoint. And, and this is not permanent damage by any means, you know? Yeah. And in fact, it can actually improve things long-term if you supply the recovery time. But it just seems that these programs often just continually nuke these athletes with dosages of that type of work without allowing them the time to recover in between. Mm. You know, if you listen to my comments and my philosophies, you might, you know, get the idea that I'm anti-weights or that I'm anti-squats or whatever the case, that, that nothing can be further than the truth. It's just that I just see an undervaluation of intensity and an overvaluation of volume and training frequency with those particular type of exercises. You know, it's sad to say, but, you know, in America here in the NCAA, I think that probably 80 to 90% of the American football players never achieve their um, potential, you know, genetic potential as far as speed is concerned, simply because that type of training structure just keeps them in that constant state. Mm -hmm. And to be frank with you, I think that probably 40 to 50% of them probably play four years of American football and leave slower than they were when they came into the program. They're better players in many ways, don't get me wrong, but but it, the, the raw speed qualities that got them into the sport in the first place are not as, are, are just not as, as, uh, as, as um, they're not present anymore. Mm -hmm. Have you found through your coaching practice that, you know, as players get older too, that the, the spacing or the density of sessions is, is really important in terms of when you want to kind of hit all these, let's say core um, training methods, whether it's max strength and, and, and acceleration and, and, max speed that, that the really the recovery time is needing to be lengthened with the maybe more mature athletes that have higher outputs yeah that's there's there's no question that's the case uh sometimes athletes though that's a hard sell mm -hmm. you know I, I i tell athletes all the time that the program that got you good is not the program that will keep you good and keep you healthy when you enter in the latter stages of your career so uh you know when when an athlete has you know continuously lifted four times a week you know through high school into the early years of college to convince them that like twice a week with a higher intensity but more rest in between the sessions is actually going to benefit them mm -hmm. more it it can be a tough sell at that time and what sadly happens is a lot of athletes don't figure it out until they get hurt and realize that they simply have to do it that way yeah and, and, and track and field is no different you know mm -hmm. us athletes you know like athletes that are still trying to do huge tempo sessions that they did when they were freshmen in college that really have no purpose or no business in their programs at their ages anymore. And, you know, so it, it's, it's true in every sport and uh, it, it, you know, you, you need a coach who not only understands this, but you also need a coach who can sell it, I guess you would mm -hmm, say. Mm -hmm. Remember it's, it's, 
you know, I don't blame the athlete in any way, shape or form, because it's the athlete's job to want to go, you know, that yeah. the athlete's supposed to say, go, go, go. And, it, but it's the coach's job to say, whoa, 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 sometimes. Yeah, that's a good one. And it's, it's real in the main. And I've had that trouble myself, particularly over the last year, you know, as I've got older, like there's, there's been some roadblocks with regards to, you know, me recovering from, from key sessions and noticing that, yeah, as you said, the session that got me to my personal best is not the ones that are going to take me, you know, back there and beyond, you know, and it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow when you're kind of, let's say, innately a hard worker and feel as though like talent isn't exactly your, your prime driver and, and therefore need to kind of not outwork people, but you want to be able to do everything as planned because you feel like that translates into performance when in reality, like, you know, your intuition and, and kind of communication skills begin to be a bit more um i suppose at the forefront of, of what you're doing and, and the coach obviously needs to then also um share that same view because sometimes coaches too are biased towards hard work in that like maybe they were an athlete or or maybe the athletes they've had were able to do plan a all the time but subsequently you know they've met an athlete that is not in that realm anymore and, and they have to kind of change their lenses as well don't you think no, there's no question. And a lot of coaches, I might fall into that category, weren't great athletes. They were average athletes, you know, mm -hmm. and they had to really work hard in order to be successful. And they value that work ethic. And sometimes we tend to overvalue that work ethic. You know, the work ethic can be your greatest friend, but can also be the thing that really shoots you in the foot, per se, and in that regard. So, yeah, there's no question. And to, to sell somebody on a quality based approach is. It could be a challenge, you know. I'll tell you a quick story. There was a young lady I coached in the long jump. I won't say her name, but she's someone you all know. And mm -hmm. the first time we ever did a speed development workout uh, on the table was 390s. And I could see she was a little upset, you know, like 390s. You know, well, how, how, how am I going to make the Olympic team just running 390s? And um, anyway, I said, well, will you, will you do it? Will you trust me? Yeah, she says, yeah, I'll trust you. And to make a long story short, she ran the first one, took her rest. She ran the second one. She was passed out. Mm -hmm. Like So the same young lady who was upset that she was only doing 390 is passed out after two of them. Yeah. You know, couldn't couldn't do the plyometrics, couldn't go to the weight room. And the point is, is that, you know, she'd come from a culture where, you know, everything was 85%, 90%, 95%. And, you know, she had never really trained at a level that was really comparable to what you would do in competition, you know, and, and, and that, you know, that was a rude awakening for her, but she was smart. She got it real quick. And my point is, is that unfortunately some people never get it and some mm -hmm. coaches never do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting out of that volume mindset almost that, you know, the, the, I suppose, amount of reps or what have you, no, it's it's even true for myself. I, I remember working with a coach a couple of years ago and um, he had said to me, like, we're going to do on Wednesday, you're going to do two to three flies. That's 30 build up 20 fly. And I was like, two to three. I used to do six of these, like, you know, but the reality was he was like, no, but I want them to run fast. I want you to do them like 95% plus. And um, and he's like, and if you break a PR, like, you know, you're timing them and they're over, you know, your fastest ever. I want you to cut it. And I was like, well, all right, like, I mean, I guess so. And I ran the two of them, like, you know, around personal best level. And I was like, oh, okay. I probably was running these, like, when I did six, probably at like 90%. I wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. I wasn't hitting them like this. Um, but that's just an important realization and, and probably plays to something that I've heard you say before is that, 
you know, intensity is, is really important um, for, let's say, the development of the more mature athlete. No, no question. I'll tell you a little story that kind of outside. We, at LSU, we had a phenomenal distance coach. His name is Houston Franks. He's one of the best anywhere. And uh, he was sprinting his athletes some 90s one day, and they were doing kind of like some stuff like you do with a sprinter. They're 800-meter runners. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was kind of listening to the athletes um, off on the side, and they were very proud of themselves because they had done seven or eight of them. And I went in there and I fussed them. I says, that's terrible. What do you mean? I said, if you'd run these the way they were supposed to have been run, you would have never been able to run seven or eight of them. You would have only been able to run maybe three or four of them, you know? And they had never thought of it that way, you know? And uh, it was an eye-opening uh, thing for them. And mm -hmm. the next session was a lot better, to be honest with you, from a quality mm -hmm. standpoint, you know? You know, you never know what athletes are thinking. It's the wrestling match of, of the distance runners versus sprinters all the time. You know, the, the, the distance runners will say, you know, the sprinters are lazy, but you tap into that neural fatigue and it's getting away from the aerobic stuff. Like you'll understand why we, we only do a certain amount of reps. It's a completely different ball game. Um, yeah, everybody's got work ethic, but do you allow your work ethic to drive you toward the correct training model? That's, yeah. that's, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, because that takes different forms per event, you know, and, and everything else. So in so many different, uh, like being intentional about what you're doing technically, like I would I would argue that's a, a form of work ethic, too, because typically it's 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 too, you know, it's 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 kind of, I suppose, oriented around um, quantity and, and, and time spent. But it's like, well, no, you can have a great work ethic, you know, if you're, you know, let's say half the time of that was intentional and and one in which you were fully present for and, and i suppose um engaged with your coach or what have you like that's how how can you say that's not good work ethic oh exactly you know it's just are you willing to invest work ethic in intensity rather than volume in in these critical events that's the the, the question and you have to be able to see that you know the young lady i told you about who passed out after the second 90 you know, it was obvious for her, but sometimes it's not so obvious. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get off topic because I know we started kind of on the the idea of pelvic undulation, oscillation. And, and when we go into like specific track and field terms, um, do you have like, I suppose, methods, whether it's drills, cues, you know, some people even will use different, I suppose, objects to kind of tease these positions out these rotational components and and so forth like how have you over your kind of coaching career um started to unlock some of these let's say uh bad coordination patterns if you will or, or maybe the lack of yeah. movement through those areas yeah when i when i see absences of pelvic oscillation there's normally a couple of culprits first of all i'm not a drill person as probably most of you know i'm, I'm not the person who has a drill for every problem because uh, drills really don't translate in many situations. So I like to coach movements within the context of the movement. You know? So um, anyway, but, but there are two key factors. The, the first is my underlying philosophy that the pelvis is not only supposed to move, but it will move if we just build the body the way the body is supposed to be built. Meaning that I feel that if you have the correct training mix, the proper percentages or investments in strength training, mobility training, uh, um, uh, speed-based training, plyometric. If you have the right training mix, 
ultimately the pelvis is going to move simply because the body's been built correctly. You know, it's not any different than buying a car and are you greasing it and lubricating it and oiling it in the correct spots in those situations. I'm a firm believer that pelvic oscillation and pelvic movement is not something that is difficult. It's just that are we indeed building the body in a way that allows it to happen? You know, and that's my, my view of training in general is to build the body in a way to allow it to do what it does naturally. You know, I, I do track and field clinics all the time and I'll often ask, you know, like, who taught you to run? Talking to the coaches and they'll throw up a hand and they'll spot out the name of some junior high uh, track coach, but that's not one day you just ran. Running is a basic movement pattern. It's primal. On the farm, we'd cut heads off of chickens and they'd still run around the yard. So it doesn't take much of a brain to sprint. So the point is, is that we, we tend to overcomplicate these things. And more often, a lot of the problems, the issues we see as far as insufficient pelvic movement are simply based in poor training. You know, the absences are the over presence or overdoing certain types of different training modalities. The other thing that I find that is a bit of an issue is the, the bias towards stride frequency. Um, range of motion and stride frequency are always in an inverse relationship, you know, and when I go a lot of places and watch a lot of athletes train, what I see is I see sprint drill, drills that are done far too fast, and as a result of that, the ranges of motion the athletes are achieving are too small. They're not big. They're not open. We're not opening tissues. We're not stretching tissues. We're not elastically loading tissues simply because the ranges of movement are small. You know, sometimes I'll see kids do hurdle walkovers and they'll have their hands on their head and they're moving slowly, but the knees are coming up nice and high and they're nice and tall. And then other times I'll go places and the kids are moving through the hurdles very quickly, but they're bent at the waist. The knees are not coming up anymore. You see what I'm getting at is mm -hmm. that frequency. Anytime we try to go fast, ranges of motion tend to increase. And I think the same thing is true with a lot of these pelvic oscillation models, is that the pelvic oscillation simply gets shut off because of the fact that stride frequencies are too high at a particular point in the sprint, in the approach, or whatever the case may be. So mm -hmm. that's why I've always tried to make it a fundamental thing that you learn on the first day of practice if you're in my training group, is that range of motion is going to be there, all right? Period. End of story. And we're never going to sacrifice that. In my training group, we call it keeping the run open. That's the term mm -hmm. we use for that. And you're never going to sacrifice your openness. You're never going to sacrifice openness so that you can feel stronger or more powerful or quicker for that matter. Mm -hmm. so, so to me, those are the two key things. Are you training right? And are you distributing uh, stride frequencies correctly and as patiently as you should be? If you take care of those two things, everybody gets it sooner or later. Yeah, and I said this off air to you before we even started, is that like I had, number one, an, an injury history around the pelvic region that took me out for basically a season. Um, and before I went to, this is before I went to the US, this was back in Ireland, um, and I was running with very high frequency. So, you know, there was a couple of different mechanisms that I would, you know, revert to to protect myself. And I saw this in the context of long jump as well, where I would massively decelerate um before takeoff because i feel like that frequency wasn't playing into the role of how i would be able to get sufficient force on the board if that makes sense i suppose i i think it it, it kind of relays back to something that you um 
said a, a while ago also on Twitter that I was paying attention to was like big open runs equal big open jumps. Um, and I think I also saw a lack of range of motion through my likes of my takeoff and my flight because of that kind of frequency bias. But actually where I was going with that was um, as I transitioned over to the NCA and had a coach who was, again, emphasizing stride length, a bit more airtime. I was able to kind of get that limb exchange if, if as, as coaches kind of coin it now um, going. And I felt as though that was number one, preventing injuries that, you know, I had in the past, but it was um, two, just making things feel a lot more free. Um, and it wasn't, I think the biggest resistance on my half on as an athlete was like, it didn't feel fast. It didn't feel fast compared to before. It didn't feel like I was trying hard enough. But in actuality, when I went to run 100 meters and I looked like the complete opposite athlete of the year before, I ran a pretty big personal best. So I think that's another thing that like kind of becomes a, a layer to the whole implementation of that too, is the communication with the athlete. And you mentioned that with regards to like the volume and the training prescription side of things, but it's also like getting an understanding or maybe a new understanding of what is fast. There's no question. And, and you brought up a good point, you know, just the fact that generally speaking when it comes to sprinting jumping the better you become the slower things feel that's just that's just as simple as it can be and athletes often have that the opposite um the opposite mentality so to mm -hmm. speak you know one of the big parts of my uh coaching has always been what i call bench talk you know like after the session's over and everybody's on the bench sitting down changing their shoes typically coach goes over there and tries to say something wise you know but I always talk about two different athletes. You know, there's the athlete that you're sitting in the stands watching them come down the long jump runway and they don't look very fast. You know, they don't look very fast because the run's nice and open, but you go down on the side of the runway and when they pass by you, it's like, Whoa. and then there's the other athlete, you know, that you look at them and you look at the stride frequency and they look fast. And then when they're, you're down on the side of the runway next to that athlete and that athlete passes by, like you're not really afraid to step out in front of the runway in front of that person because they're really not coming with much. So mm -hmm. the people that look fast aren't and the people that look slow often aren't as well. Mm -hmm. And that's when I start to try to break down these stereotypes and get athletes to kind of understand, you know. Mm. Yeah. You know, as far as that kind of translates over to the runway, um, you, you mentioned in, in some of your talks within continuing education that like the vertical component to the run is is critical um why do you think that is for the most part because it's not something that i do believe coaches are talking about all that much but yet you've delivered this many times and, and quite a long time ago as well yeah well some kids get it naturally and they may not be a need to discuss it a lot but ultimately when you look at an athlete sprinting a good sprinter an efficient sprinter there's a lot of elastic energy being generated through undulation of the center of mass you know the bouncing movement of the center of mass you know if uh, you don't when a good athlete is sprinting their hips their center of mass is not traveling level in a in a straight line it's it's subtly bouncing you know the high points of that bounce are associated with the middle of the flight phase the low points are basically associated with the the ground contacts and, and such and basically what a good jumper is doing, a good jumper is taking that subtle bounce and amplifying it at takeoff. You know, uh, that subtle bounce that that athlete's bringing, the, the, the low point is amplified into a penultimate and the high point is amplified into a jump. And if you don't have that undulation present, you know, through that, that vertical component, then ultimately 
you're going to have to decelerate or sit on the penultimate or stick out the foot or do something in order to create a lift uh, because you're not going to be able to do it within the context of the good run. So this is one of the reasons why that vertical component is so important. And the other reason why is because anytime you get excessively uh, horizontal, uh, you're always going to pay a price in pelvic positioning. So that's also very important as far as maintaining neutrality of the pelvis as you sprint. Mm, yeah, and that description of, I suppose, takeoff, um, I suppose, trade-offs almost is exactly what I was experiencing, as I described in 2017, before I kind of went to a, a less frequency-oriented run. What I was getting was a lot of sticking out of the foot. I remember one competition, albeit it was a far jump, I remember my, my toe nearly going through the roof of my spike because I just literally jammed it in that much. Got great lift and all that, but I, I suppose like the sell for my coach thereafter was, look, that's great to jump 750, but you're not going to jump 780 that way because you're losing too much speed at the runway. And he was like, in order for you to actually maintain that, you're going to have to buy into the idea that, that the impulse is, is generated on the runway. There's a bit more length there. Um, so I, I, I definitely have, have felt that working um, firsthand. I suppose something that comes to mind also when you're, when you're speaking about those ideas is the importance of the transition like people when they project too horizontally also lose their ability to kind of um see the board early enough so they're they're kind of climbing late and it kind of calls call causes foul errors as a result too right yeah no question you know when you start to push horizontally in your last few if you've had something good vertical going on your body's kind of tracking you know in that mode and then when you go horizontal you see decreases in stride length and therefore it's when i introduce inaccuracy problems you know anytime you have radical changes in mechanics in the last few steps the board becomes really hard to find with your kind of observation on the impulse side you mentioned like there some athletes do it naturally very well um is it is it kind of is there a certain athletes whether they have physio physiological characteristics or is it just prior coaching that you feel like a lot of these things come naturally to the athlete? I found like it was a little bit harder for me because I wasn't so elastic naturally. So I would kind of suppose over push at times. Um, yeah, just in interested to kind of know like who have you found to be the people who tend to not have that vertical component to the run naturally or do you feel like it's just more of a, a prior coaching um, yeah, well, I think it's it, it's a, yeah, I think it's related to your training to some extent. I, I do think that every human being on the planet, when they're untrained and before they really get into training, has a significant horizontal bias. You know, mm. humans, if, if we have the same hip as, if you look at bony structures, we have the same hip as a dog and a horse, but we're walking around on two feet while they're walking around on four. And it's just been my experience that developing vertical push characteristics is just something you got to work real hard at why I bias my plyometric program to the vertical side uh, mm. for that particular reason. So sometimes you get a person who has had vertical jumping experience and has, you know, become proficient in vertical pushing and they kind of take to it naturally. Others, you have to work a little bit harder. But to me, there is no like person who is like God blessed from the out of the womb as a good vertical pusher that just doesn't seem to be the case it seems that we have a, an anatomical bias toward the horizontal that we have to combat as humans 
um, not to get controversial, who knows, maybe our evolution is not yet complete yet. We'll see, mm -hmm. who knows? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, that brings up an interesting thing that I was going to talk about later on, but I think it's very fitting to do so now is that, you know, plyometric selection, I, I feel like there is cultural influences in, in how they're executed when just particularly when we're talking about vertical um, plyometrics, if it's depth jumps, hurdle bounds, etc. I've found that yielding is not necessarily a concept that I've really heard of until I heard the likes of yourself, Dan Path talk about it. Um, because realistically, I guess the the metric of success within a plyometric was all about the, I suppose, the degree of knee bend that you were seeing. Um, but you believe that that's very necessary, especially in the kind of foundational stages of teaching. Um, talk a little bit about that. I think that, um, yeah, in, in plyometric teaching, generally speaking, culturally, we have coaches who are continuously preaching to athletes to get off the ground quickly, mm -hmm. get off the ground as quick as you possibly can. And in most situations, that's probably the correct thing to say because we tend to sit on the ground too much or amortize too much or whatever the case may be. But there are some people that are too rigid, too stiff, and don't allow elastic responses to occur in the extensor muscles. And those people kind of have to be taught to give a little bit, you know, and, and to, uh, to show a little bit greater degrees of amortization um, in, the, in that respect, you know. Now, those people are in the minority, you know, and, but if you're coaching 20 people, 18 of them, if you indiscriminately tell them, you know, get off the ground quicker, you probably improve all 18 of those. But the other two, they're ones that are going to have to feel a little bit more yielding, a little bit more amortization. So there's a sweet spot that you're trying to hit there. You know, you're not trying to minimize impact uh, or, or ground contact times you're definitely of course not trying to maximize them there's a sweet spot where you're trying to, that you're trying to optimize them in those uh, situations you know track and field is an interesting sport because everything in track and field is so responsive you know everything's quick everything's fast and whatever but when i get away from other sports and work with other sports where change of direction is important for example if you're working with a soccer player who has to plant the foot and redirect that's a long contact time so you know, the ability to operate in longer contact time situations is very important in those other sports. And sometimes because we're in track and field, we, we lose sight of that side of the spectrum. Mm, yeah, no, that, that does make a lot of sense. And I suppose um, when we're talking about plyometrics, like, would you say that oftentimes when you're kind of beginning that teaching phase that the, that the hip knee and ankle working congruently is is the foundation of what you'll teach and then it's layering in the the kind of i said speed of execution once that's in a stable kind of place yeah there's no question if the hip knee and ankle aren't working you use the term congruently i'm going to define congruently as uh an athlete being able to amortize to absorb forces in all three joints somewhat equally mm -hmm. um if, if that's not the case, then anything you do from that point forward is going to be dangerous. So mm -hmm. in short, that's the first thing that you check. That's the first box you must uh, check as far as technical proficiency if an athlete is going to be able to progress. You know, I've done a ton of, uh, quite a few ACL rehabs. And one of the things I do with them as I bring them back is we move into drop jumps and they'll fall off of a box and they'll land. I'll have them fall off of a box and bounce. I'll have them fall off of a box and move smoothly into a squat. And it's amazing what I see is, you know, I'll see knees crashing together or I'll see athletes who bended the waist and don't bend the knees at all. 
I'll see some athletes that the torso stays upright and the knees bend and the hips don't flex at all. It's, it's just very interesting because at that stage, I identify very clearly exactly why the ACL got torn in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's been fun for me. You know, you asked earlier in the talk what I'm doing now. I'm doing a lot of rehab-based type of stuff and a lot of rehab consulting. And uh, again, I, I find it that it's just coaching. And in many respects, a lot of the things that I've learned doing rehabs, I've brought into my coaching now. And, uh, and they give me the confidence to kind of stick to my guns even more so. Yeah, and I, I, the reason I brought that up was kind of in my own experience of executing the likes of hurdle bounds, uh, especially when I was younger, is that the kind of stiff-legged emphasis is is great to a degree, but I, I often found myself getting knee trouble, like a lot of patella tendonitis, because I wasn't allowing myself to bend at all, or at least it was so kind of, I suppose, emphasized um, to not do it. It was, it was bad, but I can do them all day now that I've kind of got the the patterning down correctly now then I've found, okay, we've got that nicely sewn up. It's pretty second nature. We've got a layer in that like emphasis of, of getting off quick, but that's, that's a lot more um, safe now that I've kind of honed in on how I'm doing it. So I thought that that was important to bring up because I feel like there are still a lot of videos out there that I'm seeing where athletes are, you know, not as you've observed just in your own kind of rehab practice there that there's there's kind of a, an out of sync um uh whether it's the hip or the knee or, or what have you and you're obviously paying for it then in, in one kind of joint or another uh because you're not using it effectively um but but on the long jump and and this is definitely something that i i feel like you were the right person to talk about this um true just you know, again, different uh, pieces you've mentioned through the Altus Jumps course, which is fantastic. I've really enjoyed that. Um, but also just seeing the likes of um, Todd's jumpers as you were kind of working with them um, as a strength and conditioning coach at LSU. The idea of, of I suppose, body positions at takeoff and then the, how that influences um, over-rotation or, or, or some necessary rotation. I won't say it over-rotation, but it's kind of a it's a it's a necessary thing and maybe a factor that's commonly seen among big jumps um talk to me about what you see oftentimes in those instances well as far as positions that take off the most important one is neutrality of the pelvis you know earlier we talked about the pelvis moving but we never want to see the pelvis move radically from a position of neutrality you know it'll it'll move into slight degrees of anterior and posterior tilt in the sprint cycle and throughout and ultimately in takeoff but that's the single most important thing you do as far as forward rotation control is concerned is manipulate the position of the, the pelvis through good sprint mechanics and through the proper takeoff mechanics. You know, remember, forward rotation doesn't really manifest itself in the head or the chest. You know, you can fight to keep the head up, you can fight to keep the chest up, and that's all fine. But ultimately, uh, the, the position of the pelvis is what dictates whether we're subject to forward rotation or not. So that's probably the single most important thing as far as forward rotation is concerned. Now, when you discuss, you imply something I think very important. You know, sometimes people think that the perfect long jump or the perfect triple jump, you're not experiencing any forward rotation. That's not the case. You know, in a good jump, you're going to experience some forward rotation that you have to, to manage the very best jumps are that case. That's why as a college coach, if you recruit an athlete who comes into your program, has been forwardly rotated all their life, 
have been face planting in the sand for you know for years and you kind of teach them posture and you fix them that's a real easy coaching job but when you recruit the athlete who's been too high all their life uh who's never really displaced beyond the board and never experienced any forward rotation and now suddenly they have to become uncomfortable by dealing with some forward rotation that's a much more difficult coaching job because one person's moving from uncomfortable to comfortable but one's moving from excessive comfort to a position of slight discomfort so that's a, a nice challenge sometimes in jump coaching is just encouraging and teaching people that risk taking is is part of is it's part of it mm-hmm. uh, do you feel like there are any kind of coaching cues or or better yet i suppose emphasis that that maybe hinder that process under under um are just happening reflexively i guess that's what i'm trying to say uh you mean as far as keeping the pelvis neutral through yeah neutral and then i suppose you know that rotation element too they're they're yeah. probably backwards lean and I, I know there's a few other things that you've kind of um, talked about before yeah it the, you know as far as actually the idea of dealing with the rotation sometimes those kids you just have to be a butthole about like you're going to land every jump you're going to figure out how to land every jump in practice and i make those kids land a lot more because i've had jumpers who come to me who are really good that have hit good jumps and dropped out of them simply because they felt excessive forward rotation when that was actually you know exactly what we were looking for in those situations as far as maintaining the neutrality of the pelvis most of that's related to two things you know the strike angles and the shin are they pushing vertically coming in and the other one is stride frequency you know a lot of times and you know uh pelvic misalignments and far rotations are often related to excessive increases in frequency in the last few steps Mm, yeah that makes sense and i guess something that I feel as though might be playing a little bit of a role in, in some of those scenarios as well is kind of the emphasis of maybe driving the knee too much. Um, yeah. Do you feel like that can kind of be a hindrance as well? Yeah, I, no, without any doubt. Um, what I, you know, I, I'm kind of known at being kind of on the fringes of coaching culture because I'm not a big knee lift guy. You know, when I'm teaching athletes in the earliest stages of learning, you know, to, I, whether it's simple hopping, simple bounding, short run jumps, drills, things of that nature, I never let them drive their knees high. I always make them block their knees below the hips. And the reason why is because it's just a terrible habit when knee lift is overdone and prematurely done that wrecks a lot of the good jumping mechanics. You know, uh, what basically happens in a good jump is that you displace off the penultimate, you put a nice stretch reflex on the hip flexor, and then the knee kind of swings through uh, as a result of that elastic response on the hip flexor. And what I see happening so often with this excessive knee drive is sometimes I see people who get their knees up to their, their thigh up to parallel, and they're not even across the board yet. You know, so that means that the knee is not up, you know, the, the, the knee's not driving, the thigh's not swinging uh, elastically at all. It's purely concentric. And it also means that um, in, when it's rushed in that way, um, we see anterior pelvic tilt creep into the jump. You know, for example, um, the way the body's kind of hardwired to operate, if the knee flexes abruptly, through fascial communications, other joints tend to flex abruptly as well. So if you're overdoing that knee drive, 
uh, then what tends to happen is not only does the knee flex abruptly, but the hip flexes abruptly, mm. and now you've sacrificed that pelvic alignment. So that's why I've never made a real big deal about knee drive or knee lift or whatever, and why I've always maintained at, at slow speeds, drills, things of that nature, just keep the knees low so that athletes can get the sensation of the neutral pelvis and get the sensation of applying force through the neutral pelvis, and you're developing good jumping habits that way. Now, if I teach it this way and my athlete comes down and the thigh happens to come up the parallel and take off through the course of good mechanics and with a properly timed swing, that's fine. So I'm not against a parallel knee. It's just about how you get it there, what chain of muscle firing gets it to that position and the timing of it arriving in that position. Mm-hmm. And I just found that the lower knee lift is just a great way to eliminate all of those bad habits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, don't put the cart before the horse. Like, that's not what you should be ordering, I guess, to be the first thing at takeoff. But rather, it's it's kind of a, a I suppose it's a byproduct of, of things done well from the penultimate right through towards um, the actual takeoff contact itself. And, and, and after the board, it should kind of come through late versus early. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Late is the word. That's a very good way to put it. You know, it's not unlike a hurdle trail leg, you know, a good hurdle trail leg, a good long jump knee drive. They're all quick, but they're late. There's a Mm -hmm. difference between something being quick and something being early. And late is the late is the answer. You know, most of this stuff, it relates more directly even to the triple jump, you know, where I see athletes trying to do single leg hops and they're rotating the foot and bound, you know, and you know, what happens is when, as soon as they try to cycle the leg up high, you know, the first thing that happens, the flexion in the knee produces flexion in the hip, you've got anterior pelvic tilt, and the whole exercise becomes really dangerous at that point. And not only that, when you flex the hamstring, the quad relaxes. So now the Mm. quad doesn't have the flight time available to turn back on to protect the knee at impact. It's a recipe for arthritis is what it what it is i've seen you know athletes that do simple little multi-jump routines you know that really try to cycle high when they mm-hmm. do single leg hops and things like that instead of keeping the knees a little lower and the feet a little closer to the ground and it, it it'll destroy your knees it, mm-hmm. it's it's the single that's the, the nice thing about keeping those knees a little low and hopping and bounding is that uh, by keeping the knees a little lower it stays ridiculously safe the quad is always in position to protect the knee And um, so it's important, I think, to understand that, you know, at this point in the discussion, there's always some triple jump aficionado who will grab me and say, no, 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 I watched the triple jump and the hip, you know, the the heel comes off the foot in the first phase. Yes, I can see that that is true, but that is a result of the velocity of the event. That's a result of the way angular forces are translated to the lower leg due to the velocity of the event at that point. When you're doing these simple little hopping and bounding routines, there are there is no velocity present. There is yep. no approach speed at that point. So this is the reason why those recovery heights don't apply in those situations. Yeah, and that reminds me exactly what I mentioned earlier with skipping is that uh, someone was trying to teach me how to skip before and saying that you want to practice your driving knee whilst doing the skipping. And, you know, realistically, it wasn't happening other than through my conscious concentric emphasis. Like it wasn't, you know, because again, you see these um, positions as a byproduct of, you know, elasticity through that kind of penultimate swing 
um, mm -hmm. through the takeoff and it kind of comes naturally. And so it's funny when I started to like work on the grounding aspect of it, like pushing away the hip and, and other, I suppose, things that weren't oriented around the knee, I actually started to get the knee lift. But it, and and even even that was kind of um something that I just had to explore myself and I feel as though it's um it's been similar experience with learning um hopping routines as you've just mentioned there like uh there's a huge emphasis from what I can see on on multiple of your philosophies is that there's an emphasis on relaxation is that there's not like a lot of I suppose forcing an ice isolated position. No, I I'm a firm believer that the um. In, in in relaxation, relaxation allows range of motion. More importantly, relaxation allows tissues to stretch and then you maintain elastic involvement. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that most mid-level to low-level jumpers, the biggest mistake I see over and over again is just trying to overwork the last four steps. And that that's long jump, high jump, triple, every mm -hmm. overall, every jumping event, frankly. You know, and what I'm trying to make my athletes understand is that if you're running, say, 18 steps on the runway, 14 of them are about building momentum and velocity, but the last four are relaxed. Mm -hmm. You know, so I want those last four relaxed. If we're running eight-step short run stuff in practice, we push for four, relax for four. If we're going for 10, we push for six and relax for four. So the last four should always be relaxed. And I think it's just a disease that is very prevalent where people just overwork and over accelerate in the last few steps you know mm. i mean if you think about what acceleration looked like you see a forward lean you see hips tilted downward or whatever that's why you got to accelerate early and not late in these jumping events the work has to be done earlier and if that's not the case well then you know if, if leaning forward if you have to accelerate and you have to lean forward when you accelerate i want to do that early in the run and definitely not late in the run so the whole idea of accelerating through the board and everything is not really something that i talk about a lot now you might have one weird word one weird one in your group that genuinely does slow down at the board and you might talk to them about accelerating through the board but that's very very rare it's, mm -hmm. those are few and far between most athletes are overworking the last few steps and as a result just can't hit the positions and time up takeoffs correctly many of the long jumpers i've spoken to have, would say when they pr'd or had that breakthrough jump it was like effortless through the end through the end of the run it was it was really not a case of i need to work harder here it's i was on autopilot no that's very well said i think that's, that's um, and i use a lot of cues that kind of or at least attempt to convey that same sensation Mm. something that you mentioned there about the bounding as you were kind of going through the heel recovery and 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 perhaps even when it comes to knee drive as it pertains to the long jump as well i see that there's uh i suppose an effect on displacement you know and i think you've coined the phrase free distance when you were talking about the altus jumps course um so, and that's in everyone's interest right is that you don't necessarily want to shorten the range of motion at takeoff so that you know you don't jump as far really that's what we're all after no it's very simple you know like if uh if you see significant displacement in the last few steps by simple correlation uh you're going to have a better jump you know the if you know if you can if you can envision the undulation of the center of mass if you get a real quick short wavelength then you're going to have a real quick short wavelength in the jump and vice versa and then of course uh 
if you're open in the last few steps, that's going to enable you to move out beyond the board, get the hips out past the board to take off in the long jump and the triple jump where that displacement is important. And then you get that free distance. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the triple jump takeoff, I've seen you mention things about rotating the shin. Um, do you think that plays a role in the whole, I guess, late swing displacement discussion? Well, rotating the shin happens in every jump, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and in many other things, you know, if you, for example, if you pull up a video of a great sprint start, like a, like a soccer Powell, mm -hmm. for example, before he ever gets out of the blocks, the first thing you see is you see his shin rotate downward about maybe 10 degrees or so. You know, mm -hmm. if you watch an athlete do a standing long jump right before they jump into the sand, you'll see that the shins both rotate forward. Rotation of the shin is a quad loading mechanism. It loads the quad through the BMO and everything. And basically it allows the quad to operate elastically. So the rotation of the shin is important. Now in the long jump, when we plant the foot, we see the shin tilted backward very slightly and it rotates to a slight forward tilt. Mm -hmm. that, there's your shin rotation. Mm -hmm. In the high jump, we see it planted tilted backwards and it rotates to a vertical position. Mm -hmm. So, so we see shin rotation in some plane with some start point, some end point in every jump. And it doesn't seem to be that big a deal that nobody really talks about it, but the triple jump seems to be the event where we don't, don't accept it or we have to encourage it because athletes have a tendency not to do it for some reason. You know, when you put your foot on the board as a triple jumper, when that foot hits the board, it's not time to go yet. You know, when that foot hits the board, the shin is typically in a fairly vertical position. It needs to rotate forward several degrees and we continue to move horizontally before you actually push. So you basically put the foot on the board, allow yourself to move, and then you push through that rotated shin at that point. And so many athletes, as soon as they put the foot on the board, they're trying to cycle through. They're trying to take off immediately. So the weight and push idea is a very important one. It makes a big difference in the way the foot recovers and how the foot recovers into the next phase. So now, all of a sudden, not only you're just affecting better takeoff mechanics, but you're affecting that second phase that's at the body's problem as well. Mm -hmm. So in short, this is something that I really look at really hard mm -hmm. and, and I make a big deal of it. And, you know, I think it's been one of the reasons why I've been successful in coaching the triple jump is just identifying that rotation of the shin as a key factor that just has to be there. When we're jumping from really short runs, it's easy for the athletes to feel the shin rotation. They feel the shin rotate. They feel weight transferring onto the ball of the foot and they can push through that and they feel it fine. At high speeds though, it's it's you can't cue it as a shin rotation anymore because it happens too quickly. This is why I typically cue the triple jump at high speeds as a post-board lowering. And mm. this is a little hard to demonstrate without a, a chalkboard or a video or whatever, mm -hmm. but what I, what I teach them is that as you run, your hips are traveling tall and level. And when you get to the board, your hips will lower a little bit, not in front of the board, but let me rephrase that, not behind the board, but in front of the board. And then you actually level off again in the hop phase. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a level down and then level off again. Mm -hmm. That's not what it looks like, but that's what it feels like to them if they're allowing. So we talk about a dip in the triple jump in front of the board, you know, on the sand side of the board uh, during takeoff 
and that's that fraction of a second that they actually feel that, that where that shin is actually rotating in, in that situation. So, and again, it doesn't look like that on video, but that's the sensation that they get. And um, after years of trying to figure out a way to cue that effectively at, at, at high speeds, um, that seems to be working pretty good. Yeah, and I I found that segment, I have to say, and I'll plug happily, um, because, I mean, why wouldn't I? Altus Jumps course, you know, you placed a good bit of emphasis on that with video demos and everything. I found that very fascinating. And that was yeah. something um, Glenn Smith did, you know, during the brief time I worked on a bit of triple jump with him. He was he was a big advocate for it as, as well. And, and I found that it was getting a lot more, how would I say, front side um, through the late stages of the hop because I was doing it that way. And yeah, it kind of got me away from wanting to pick up the heel prematurely. And I think that's, um, it's a weird that's a thing. Good, that's very accurate, what you just described. Um, yeah. and, and one thing I'd like to add, if you allow me, um, this is one of the reasons why triple jump is that event where you have the athlete who jumps 15 meters from eight steps, but they jump 15, 10 from a full approach is it, because if you pay close attention in the short run, the shin is already tilted when they touch the board. So they don't have to allow the shin to rotate. Now you run from a longer run, the shin is more vertical and you haven't figured out how to allow the shin to rotate. So this is another aspect of it that you have to take a look at. Are we actually teaching shin rotation? Or are we letting a short run jump maybe rotate the shin for us where we're actually still in acceleration mode when we take off? If that's the case, you know, your short run successes in practice are not going to convert into full run of successes at, at all. And that, that's the reason why. Mm, yeah, then that, de that definitely does uh, make sense in my head from just experience and, and seeing how acceleration angles play out my, in my head and, and how that will translate into a takeoff. Um, with regards to, I suppose, phase distribution, assuming that, you know, things are, are quite stable in that area that we just talked about, are you a believer in, in kind of, I suppose, different categories for different athletes when it comes to phase distribution? Yeah, to some extent I am, but I have a little different take on it. You know, um, I, I um, first of all, I don't really worry about them in training at all. Um, mm -hmm. I like to look at the research and I kind of like to compare my athletes to what other athletes are doing. But I, I just kind of look at the mechanics and it ends up being what it is. But when I look at the phase ratios, you know, the what they used to call the Polish technique years ago, 35, 30, 35 is kind of what I'm looking for in most situations. But... The thing that, that bugs me about triple jump research and phase ratios is nobody's taken into consideration handedness patterns. You know, you're left-handed, you're right-handed. Well, in your lower body, you've got a strong leg, you've got a coordinated leg as well. So, so who's jumping off the strong leg? Who's jumping off the coordinated leg? I'm of the opinion uh, that if you are going to jump off with the stronger leg as opposed to the coordinated leg, which, by the way, is not my preference, but if you know, if somebody comes to me jumping great distances, I'm not going to switch them. You know, it is that it's really hard to get to that 35-30-35 ratio if you're going off of the strong leg and you're almost always going to be more hop dominant and less jump dominant. Mm, yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a good kind of, I suppose, heuristic to, to start uh, by assigning certain people categories. Um, you know, it, it comes comes to my attention that, like, you know, intensity is is, is a big driver in, in what you're you're kind of um emphasizing with long and triple jumpers sprinters and so forth and i i think 
it's it's something that I want to dive into a little bit more. And I wonder, does it kind of, you've mentioned you're not a massive drill person. So that kind of, I suppose, falls in line with, you know, not basically spending time on things that aren't of physiological benefit. Um, does that kind of play a, an influence in, in your weight room selection as well? Like I know there's a, you know, big emphasis out there in the world on on special exercises and and transfer and, and this that and the other so i wonder if you have kind of uh thoughts on on all that no i'm, I'm not a big special exercise guy I, I, what i like to do is i like to develop the nervous system because i know developing the nervous system is going to increase speed power strength levels period i want to develop the endocrine so that an athlete can train hard and recover uh, appropriately from that and then we practice technique, you know, and skills, and that's it. I, I don't believe in a lot of this special exercise, therefore this translates into the event type of thing, because these special exercises are typically technically too complicated to load well. You know, ultimately you can be fancy or you can be fast, you cannot be both. So if I have a exercise that I'm doing in a weight room or something like that, and it's got a complicated movement pattern, it's sexy and it's going to get a lot of hits on YouTube and a lot of people on Instagram are going to really like it. But ultimately, it's not driving improvement. It's not because of the fact that you're not capable of loading speed through it because the movement pattern is too complicated. On the other hand, you know, you can be fancy or you can be heavy. You cannot be both. So if you're looking at your key weightlifting exercises, they have to be relatively simple movement patterns if you're going to load, you know, and when I see these super hyper, you know, fancy special exercises that look like obstacle courses and, you know, they're getting all these hits on YouTube and I, I understand it's sexy. I understand it's cool. I understand it looks like the event, but ultimately you have to divorce yourself. Specificity is not about the appearance of the movement. Specificity is about specificity of demand, meaning that is the tissue load, is the nervous system stimulation, is the loading level appropriate and specific. Those are the things that I'm looking for as far as specificity. As far as specificity is concerned, we'll just practice the event, you know, and, you know, with subtle variations and different approach lengths and things of that nature. And I, I just think that when, when we crawl too far to the functional side, you lose your ability to make genuine improvements in speed strength and power which is ultimately what's most important to get athletes to an elite level mm -hmm. yeah i wonder if you've kind of i suppose seen that there is and maybe there there has been for a long time but at least maybe it's the prevalence of social media there's an emphasis on using on boxes for technical reasons and it seems like there there's some good merit and why you would select those but if is it something you've subscribed to at all in your coaching practice or is it something that you feel like i suppose well, I, I use boxes all the time i mean we'll do step ups but that's a simple movement pattern you know we'll do depth jumps and drop so i i use boxes in different capacities mm -hmm. and so forth you know for, for lots of things but i would think i would i would like to say that the things that i'm using them for I still feel strongly are simple movement patterns that allow me to load either with speed or load with um, weight mm -hmm. appropriately in, in that regard. So I'm not against any kind of equipment or anything like mm -hmm. that, but I just know when it comes to develop, developing speed, power, the exercises have to be either simple ones 
are primal ones. When mm-hmm. I say primal, I mean sprinting is, you know, running is a primal movement pattern. You know, jumping is a primal movement pattern, you know, that that we can kind of organize neurally, subcortically, you know. Mm-hmm. If, if you've got to think your way through an exercise, it's not a good exercise for speed or power development. Maybe it's good for some other reason, but not for that reason. Yeah, I, I should have been more specific with that question. I was actually asking it in reference to long jump short approach and things oh, like that good. yeah no i should oh, have said I'm that sorry. there was a time i did but as my cueing got better and i became more aware of what i wanted to see and i became pretty good at getting what i wanted from the athletes without them i tried to stay away from them mm-hmm. and there is one thing i don't like sometimes if you're using like a ramp board in the funnel on the uh, takeoff uh, sometimes i see athletes rising off the penultimate step in anticipation of the board and that's a bad habit. Mm-hmm. So the answer to the question, you know, I'm I'm not a hundred percent opposed to them, you know, um, but I, I don't use them personally. Mm-hmm. I don't feel the need anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose it, where I would see maybe a justification for it is if naturally the athlete is 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 a good takeoff kind of. Um, he can execute or she can execute the takeoff well and maybe they're having flight issues and it gives them extra flight time maybe they're you know operating from a short approach in the training year so they're not ready to go from 14 maybe you're going off eight and they've had a massive landing issue or something like that it kind of seems like it could be you know a good investment early on but you'd obviously it want could be i never say never you know yep. I, I never say never i'm you know i'm never at you know 100 absolute on anything but in short you know, outside of the caution that I gave you, if, if, if it's fitting into what you're doing and you're not getting overly gimmickly, gimmicky with it and the athletes are still performing a large amount of their time in the actual context of the event itself, um, I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. Assuming that you kind of get a, you know, different look on athletes as they get older, in other words, their training responses or better yet, the response to training is different than before. Um is there a way that you kind of assess their readiness? Do you become more flexible with choosing, I suppose, the days in which they perform sessions, i.e. going towards a more of a rollover um, and or a 10-day cycle type setup? And um, well, if you're choosing a session or there are kind of tests or pre-session things that you do in order to kind of figure that out? Um, in most situations... To be very frank with you, I very seldom have to do that. I, I, I've pretty much been doing this long enough now where I pretty much know that on Wednesday, you're not ready. On Thursday, you're not ready. On Friday, you're ready. I, I, I can pretty much dial it in at this point in time, unless the athlete is just not, you know, unless the athlete's partying too much or drinking too much or whatever the case may be, for the most part, you know, I, I can pretty much dilate in and don't really have to but i'm always asking athletes how they feel i'm always asking athletes what they you know and if there's a situation that comes up uh most of the time the single biggest variable that might make me change is travel you know when athletes just aren't completely recovered from their travel or whatever that's probably the only situation now but i'm a person that is always willing kick the can down the road a day, you know, if, you know, you got a really big speed power kind of day going and, and you feel like the athletes just aren't ready for it or whatever the case may be, I'm always willing to kick it, but you got to remember also, I'm the, I'm the coach that's not rushing things to begin with, meaning that I try to be a little more patient in my administration of frequency long-term. So 
I'm the coach that is probably err on the side of waiting a little bit longer as opposed to rushing it and getting it done earlier to begin with. So that that might be why I don't typically have to deal with these particular types of situations, you know. Now I do test athletes long term continuously mm. for trends, you know, like I always do standing long jump, standing triple jump tests. You know, I kind of feel that elasticity disappears early in an overtraining situation. So if the standing triple jump uh, drops and the standing long jump is still good, that's telling me elasticity is suffered, power still there. So that person is kind of on the edge as far as training is concerned. So my monitoring is more about long-term trends as opposed to short-term trends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, making sure you're getting the adaptations that you want, but as you say, like you've kind of, you've formulated a plan that generally gives you somewhat predictability around readiness and so forth. That there's not a lot of short-term changes needed on any given day, um, which, which does of course make sense. And it kind of feeds back into like what you said in the beginning is that you don't overdo the weight room as such. So you don't run into these kind of, I suppose, roadblocks as often. Yeah. You know, with most of my higher level athletes, we do a STEM day, neural STEM day on Monday. Uh, Tuesday's restoration, Wednesday is still STEM, and Thursday's restoration. Of course, we have some technique stuff built in there as well. And then Friday is like the big training day. So I'm not really, I'm only training at super high intensities, like one day a week, you know, uh, and I'm trying to reach really high intensities on that one day. So I'm not the kind of person who's trying to cram two or three of those day days into a week. So so, so typically, I, I've just learned the value of patience, that it's better doing it once really well than it is doing it three or four times at, with poor quality. Mm -hmm. And then would like, I suppose, attributes or, or let's say even um, aspects like tempo, take a back seat in those instances like Saturday, Sunday, are you having them recover more so or? Uh, it. If, if something is metabolic, I typically will go with it because I feel that those systems recover on a faster, they recover faster, so to speak. So if something's not boarding on speed or whatever, and it's lactate based or whatever, a lot of times that stuff actually will make them feel better. So if there isn't any real risk as far as tissue loading or whatever is concerned, I'll typically roll with it. Mm -hmm. But again, most of the time I've, I've run these training cycles so many times with so many different athletes that I... I can pretty much predict, you know. Uh, now, now if some one if a really good experienced athlete comes up to me and really has a problem, I'll I'll kick the can down the road. But if you're like in the first year training with me and you're sore and you're complaining, I'm like, suck it up because like you you know like you haven't done this before. You don't know you know what it's supposed to feel like. You know, mm -hmm. you, you you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah. Like a college freshman comes to me, coach, I'm really sore. Well, you're supposed to be sore. Let's train, you know, and we'll roll with that because they typically don't have the horsepower yet to really hurt themselves anyway. So there's really no really injury risk built into it. Mm -hmm. But once, you know, after a while when they've trained and are starting to train at a high level with good quality and they've kind of proven that they're tough, then I listen a lot more. Mm -hmm. a lot more to them. Yeah, that's a, that's a good kind of, I suppose, uh, pattern to follow because, yeah, as you say, like, they, they really haven't figured out what what it is like to train as a long jumper triple jumper sprinter or what have you um, yeah, if you're yeah if you're bringing out youngsters if you've got like a 14 year old who's just into track and doesn't want to train on the days they're sore well you know go play baseball or something else because that's you're just not going to get anywhere in this sport you know yeah 
for sure. With, you know, you, you've obviously delivered a lot of lectures and, and attend conferences and, you know, even meet with multiple members of staff and in, in professional teams, as you've mentioned. I'm, I'm intrigued to kind of get uh, maybe your insight on what you've observed from coaches that you admire or you believe are successful and, and what those shared traits are um, through your years of, of, of delivering and, and meeting different people. Well, first, yeah, that's a good question. First of all, uh, they're all self-critical, meaning that they're all willing to honestly evaluate their own work and they're really slow to blame failures on other people. Uh, they're all science-based and follow the scientific model, meaning that the training that they administer is not hocus-pocus or guessing. Uh, basically, there are constants, there are variables, they've identified key factors, and they have a progressive way of training. So it's basically science-based in the way they do things. Uh, and I think these successful coaches and educators also realize that this is a people business. You know, it's not so much about my program as much as it is about the people in it. And that there's always going to be exceptions to every single rule. There are always going to be exceptions as to the way you have to handle certain training situations, other situations. A lot of times the psychology of the sport is a big deal. You know, many times you get an athlete and you got the perfect training system and the training system ain't the problem. The problem is some other type of issue with that athlete, whether it be injury management, whether it be logical problems, whether it's fear of success or the fact that they've choked in big meets or whatever the case may be, you know? So I, I think you understand that it's more than just the two hours you spend at the track and that ultimately it's all about communications and that there are no absolutes, meaning that in no situation is there ever uh, a, a definite, you know, like I would never do this is a statement that would very seldom come out of any of these people's mouths. Mm, yeah, I think those first two particularly are, are massive and probably not talked about enough is that, you know, self-criticism and, um, you know, I would say accountability are, are two massive factors in everything. It's not exactly the fanciest thing or, or the maybe the most um, positive thing that, that is going to come out of anyone's mouth regarding what people need to do in order to be really good at something. But I do feel as as though they're hard truths and and definitely ones in which you've seemed to observe over many years. Yeah, you know, there have been times early in my career when I had athletes who were doing poorly, you know, and uh, I always tell coaches, if you're coaching 20 athletes and 18 or 19 are doing well and one's doing poorly, don't revamp, you know, consider, but don't revamp, you know, because that's that's a pretty good Batman. If you're yeah. doing, the bottom line is sometimes kids just don't do things right, you know, but I remember early in my coaching career, I have a, I'd have an athlete, maybe it'd be a high jumper, for example, who's just not jumping well, and I'm like, looking at video, I'm trying to pick a training, I'm doing all of this kind of stuff. And then another coach on the staff would come up to me and says, why are you killing yourself? This girl is out drinking every night, or this girl is this every night or whatever. And yeah, that's true. But I needed to go through that for myself. You know, that was something that I just, for my, my own personal development, I had to check, I had to cover that base. I had to check that box or whatever but at the same time i always tell coaches again if, if you're doing well with the vast majority of your athletes don't kill yourself i'll tell you a quick story one time there was a coach who called me and this coach was phenomenal coach by the way and had an athlete 400 hurdler who just wasn't doing very well and uh, was big you know had not managing weight well 
And this coach had called me up and says, what can I do training wise, you know, to do this, you know, and, and uh, for some reason, this athlete, you know, just is, you know, gaining weight and whatever. And I said, well, why are you, your athletes are doing fantastic. They've done fantastic for years. Why are you considering changing your training for this athlete who has this weight problem? And I, I, I think this athlete's different. She's a great kid and she does everything I ask. And I'm like, listen, coach, just because she does everything you think she should do at the track doesn't mean she does everything correctly when she goes home, you know? So you're sure, coach, you're trying to tell me you have the only person on the planet who can eat less and gain weight is what you're telling me right now. And that doesn't make sense. And the point I'm making, it's not criticizing that coach by any means. Again, that coach, that was a healthy approach to it, but I hate to see these things ruin good coaches. You yeah. know, I would hate to see a coach, you know, do something nice and sound and consider, you know, uh, discontinuing it simply because of the fact that one athlete was not succeeding in those situations. So that's why I always encourage coaches just kind of look at your batting average with your athletes and mm. as far as PRs and consistency and things of that nature. There's always going to be one and, and, and you just can't take that to, to heart, you know, and, and, and ultimately, um, you know, don't, don't let, don't change everything on, on in, in a situation like that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's beautiful wisdom to, to kind of round things out, Boo. I, I do appreciate all of our, our, um, exchanges during this conversation. I mean, it, we covered so much and I think, you know, you, you bring a lot of different thoughts to the, to the table that I think will allow people to make connections of coaching practice, you know, that they've maybe, um, seen through the years. And, and I think it kind of makes sense with how people can get the whole puzzle to fit together better is kind of how I would look at it. And, and, um, I, I think you do a brilliant job at, um, explaining those very kind of complicated ideas, but, but in a way that almost takes the pressure off, um, the <laughs> athlete, at least like I'm listening to it and I'm like, man, so really, you know, a lot of this stuff comes in to me relaxing a lot more and just stop trying to like overemphasize individual things, you know, and that's, that's good because, you know, there's, there's a lot, right. Obviously with some things I'm doing, but it's, it's, it can obviously be, um, you know, sometimes in, in certain cases among certain individuals, uh, a case of doing less, um, whether it's in the event, outside the event or in training or what have you. So um, that's definitely some of my take home for this. And uh, I, again, I do appreciate you taking the time amongst your busy schedule to come and talk. And obviously you're going to benefit a lot of coaches by, by giving all this wisdom away. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's always, you know, enjoyable to get out to talk to people and thanks to all the listeners. I appreciate, you know, your support and you taking time to listen to what I had to say. And uh, if you ever want to contact me, I'm pretty easy to uh, Google up an email. So um, feel free anytime. Yeah, that's a resource that you ought to take advantage of folks. But um, I thank again, similar to what Boo just said, uh, thank you for your continued support and being patient as we come through with uh, the next set of great guests. And um, yeah, just very happy to have Boo here. So um, as you're enjoying your recovery periods or getting started with your training or rounding off your seasons, uh, I hope you're healthy and uh, the season's gone according to plan. And if not, like myself, you'll be uh, taking this time to to reflect and revamp for next year. So until that time, until the next episode, take care. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review. Or 
you can share it online on social media so that your network of practicing professionals can benefit from listening to the great guests that we get on this show.